The Daily Rios, for Tuesday, April 9th, 2013. This is The Tower, Episode 3, which is titled Third Time's the Charm. It's the longest episode of The Bunch, running an hour and 40-plus minutes. It was dropped December 1st, 2009. I'm playing it here unedited, so keep in mind when it was actually first heard. In this episode, there's a lot of feedback. I do a comparison between Deadpool and Deathstroke. I look at the origins of the development of the new Teen Titans series. And then I get into the first breakdown and analysis uh, of the series with New Teen Titans number one. I talk about the cover and the many, many other covers in homage to it. I give a synopsis. I give little weird facts, such as who is the tallest Titan. Uh, And then once I wrap up the New Teen Titans 1 breakdown, I take a look at two other stories, a shorter look at two other stories that came out years later that relate to that first story, one of them being from Legends of the DC Universe, an issue with Kid Flash and Raven, and then a Legends of the DC Universe 80-page special story that takes a look at the origins of the New Teen Titans. Um, I also talk about what else was going on at the time in terms of what other comics were going on, special things that were going on, standout issues, new number ones, etc. And then I also look at what the creators were doing at that time, what Marv Wolfman was doing, what other books, what was Perez doing at at that time, and comparing his artwork across several different issues. Um, I get a little long in the analysis, I think. I think. Maybe not. Some people would probably disagree with that. I was thinking a better way would be once I dropped a synopsis and once I did uh, an, an analysis of the story and the story points, maybe then go back and go over the things that relate to the larger DC universe and then go back yet again and talk about the artwork because, you know, I was always such a big Paris fan. I still am. And that was interesting to see part of his growth. The way I do it in this episode, as you'll hear, uh, I kind of mix it all together. You know, story point, DCU stuff, uh, the artwork, I kind of mix it as I was going along page by page. So I don't know. I don't know which way I, I, I'm going to prefer eventually. But anyway, so you'll hear it uh, here in this episode, Tower Episode 3 from December 2009. Hope you enjoy. Here it is, and I'll talk to you tomorrow. Comic Geek Speak presents The Tower, Episode 3, Third Time's the Charm. On this episode, I take a look at New Teen Titans number one from 1980. We hear a little feedback from episode two. We find out just who is the tallest Titan. And I give homework. All this and more on today's episode of The Tower. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Peter Rios. Lots to cover in this episode, so let's begin right away. That's got to be one of the greatest cartoon theme songs ever. All right, first up, we're going to dip into some feedback for episode two. This is from Deadpool. He says, I got to admit, I've never read New Teen Titans, but have heard such wonderful things. Since I was born in 1986, Nightwing 
is really the Dick Grayson that I've grown up with, and I do love the character, and really want to go back to his Nightwing roots. Uh, I one day want to really get stuck into the Deathstroke aspect of the series and study that in order to pursue my deeper knowledge of my character, Deadpool, as Deathstroke in this run is, well, let's say uh, let's say he gave Rob Liefeld the idea to create Deadpool as a villain for the New Mutants. For those that don't know, 2009 is the 25th anniversary of Nightwing this whole year. Um, he first appeared in the Titan series when it was called Tales of the Teen Titans, issue 44, cover date of July 1984. So 2009 is the 25th anniversary of that character. Obviously, Dick Grayson and Robin have been around much longer than that. Even as early as the the first issue that I'm going to look at in this episode, there were there were seeds of the ideas that will eventually morph into Dick Grayson becoming his own man, um, and especially his own superhero identity. As much as uh, this podcast is a focus on the Titans, the Teen Titans, and apparently uh, from the forum conversations, also the artwork of George Perez, which is totally fine by me. It very well may become a love letter to Dick Grayson as well uh, as we watch his evolution from sidekick to team leader, escaping the shadow of the Batman, and then eventually into his own identity. So I'm not saying that uh, this first issue that we're going to look at, that Marv Wolfman and company had the idea that he would eventually become his own character by, uh, you know, this early. But you could, as we'll see, you'll, you'll see that there's a pretty uh, interesting little exchange um, in the first issue that sort of paves the way. To Deadpool's second point of the Deathstroke-Deadpool connection, uh, I found this from the Deadpool wiki. Created by artist Rob Liefeld and writer Fabian Nicieza, Deadpool made his first appearance in the pages of New Mutants 98, published in February of 1991. Rob Liefeld, a fan of the Teen Titans comics, showed his new character to writer Fabian. Upon seeing the costume and noting his characteristics, a killer with super agility, Nicieza contacted Liefeld, saying, This is Deathstroke from Teen Titans. Nicieza gave Deadpool the real name of Wade Wilson as an in-joke uh, to being related to Slade Wilson, which is, the, which is Deathstroke's secret identity. This is me now. Uh, that's about as far as I would take the comparison. Uh... The name, maybe some elements of the costume, and the real name of Wade Wilson. Beyond that, those two characters live in entirely two different worlds. All right, uh, this is from Chromix or Chromix. He says, Peter, would you be so kind? Would you be so kind as to put a small listing of the key issues you will be going over, so we can go dig them out? I'd like to read along with you. Certainly, I can do that. Um, as I said in. Previous episodes, not every episode will be f- a focus on an issue. Some episodes may be talking about the larger Titans world. Other episodes might actually have two issues that I'll take a look at, depending on the length of the story. As you heard in the preamble of this episode, I will be taking a look at issue one. I'm pretty sure next episode will be a look at issue two, and I'll definitely try to give everyone a heads up at the end of each episode. A lot of it just depends on what I feel like talking about that day, but uh, I'll definitely do my best. Daryl says, I'm really enjoying the show. I've been a Titans fan since Wolfman. I look forward to seeing Cyborg in JLA in the recent Titans run. It looks like Cyborg became the whipping boy of the book. 
He's been damaged five to six times in just nine issues, and I don't know why. I'm also excited to see how Dick will act on the JLA as Batman. Will he lead the JLA or be in the shadows being the tactician like his predecessor? It would be cool to see him lead the JLA because where Bruce is shown as a poor leader of a team, Dick has excelled in this since being a teenager. Overall, I look forward to what to what's to come. Um, yeah, uh, with all the Titans that are showing up in Robinson's JLA, it's going to be kind of hard for me to ignore it. So I'm fairly certain I'm going to take a look at those issues. I wasn't impressed with the first J- uh, James Robinson, Mark Bagley issue, but I'll give it a go again once the new team sort of surfaces. Uh, on that team, not only is Cyborg appearing and Dick Grayson is Batman, but uh, Donna Troy will be in the book and so will Starfire. Donnie says, this was the first comic I ever bought, and I've been collecting ever since. I was wondering if you're going to cover the X-Men crossover. And the answer to that is, you bet. I enjoy the format that's used by the Uncanny X-Cast guys when they do their retro reviews. What they do is uh, they started from the beginning of the X-Men book and went in chronological order, publishing order, I should say. So I'm going to look at the new Teen Titans the same way, following their publishing history as the issues came out. I'll include guest appearances in other books as well, and any spinoffs that hit the stands. And as we get to where the new Teen Titans X-Men crossover falls in publishing continuity, I'll definitely be throwing throwing that issue in. X-Jim says, I read both Titans and X-Men as a kid, going through phases with both back in the 80s. I'm 36 now. But since coming back into comics in 2007, I've gravitated toward the DC end over Marvel for various reasons. I think that at age 36, married with three kids of my own, the legacy aspect of DC Comics and the Titans world in particular appeals a lot to me now. Thus, I'm loving the direction of the Batman books right now with Damien and Dick at the forefront. As for Titans, I read the entire run of the current series starting with the amazing Jeff Johns run. Johns' run in particular was just amazing to me. I really came to love Connor and Bart in particular. Meanwhile, my kids and I are watching the Teen Titans animated series. We're a few episodes from the series finale, and my oldest six-year-old boy is obsessed with all things Titans, playing the old PS2 game on our PS3 and collecting the Tiny Titans comics. Which brings me to your new podcast. Tower, you're calling it, right? I can't wait. I've started reading the new Teen Titans run from the beginning But if you're going to be releasing the podcast on a somewhat regular schedule, I think I'll slow down on that and read the issues so as to follow along with your reviews. And yep, that is exactly my plan. And maybe sometime down the road, as I get more into the new Teen Titans universe, I'll take a look at Teen Titans Go. It's really going to just depend on, because I haven't seen the whole series to date. I've seen most of the episodes, but I certainly haven't seen all of them. So I'll be throwing little things in here at the end of every episode every now and then. Uh, so you just have to, you know, stay with me as I go through my crazy whims. Um, I have a lot to say. Jasper from the Plan9Print.com site says, Hey, man, listening to the show right now, when describing yourself, you described me almost exactly. However, I stopped drinking at the moment because I have expensive taste and I'm totally broke right now. And Jasper, all I can say is cheers to that. And I got uh, my first iTunes review. And this is from Super Emmy 7. He gave me, or he or she, that person gave me four stars and wrote, wanted to find something about the Titans. I'll listen and tell you guys how it goes. If the makers of this podcast are reading this, I like Speedy. 
I am reading that. Thank you very much for the review. If anybody wants to pop in an iTunes review, I would appreciate that. Although Speedy doesn't pop up in this series for a number of years, I want to say. Um, he is obviously very important to this book, and uh, we'll be talking about him on and off um, uh, when it when it warrants. This person might be talking about the new Speedy that's in the Green Hour book and in time and at times is in the new Teen Titans book as well. So uh, I'm not sure, but uh, Speedy is definitely an okay character. Pretty cool. We should be approaching the Fortress of Solitude momentarily. Gee, I always wanted to see Superman's fortress, but never under these circumstances. Oh, I know. But it's up to us to put his belongings in order. Hey, all I see is some sort of airplane marker. Batman, we've arrived. That's the key to the fortress, cyborg. The entrance is hidden by a holographic projection. Well, I'll be. Wait till you see what's inside. All right, let's get into just a little bit of Titans news. On November 16th, Newsarama's Vanita Rogers, who is one of the better comics reporters out there, I believe, talked with Dan DiDio, the DCU executive editor, and during their Q&A, this bit of Titans news came up when she asked if there were other key teams uh, deserving of franchise development. And this is what Dan had to say. One of the things we're trying to do now and in the coming months is to put a fire under the Titans and Teen Titans again to get those stories back in everybody's mind. There's a richness of characters in there that could probably support their own stories if given the chance. When I look at characters like Cyborg and how long he's been around and the fact that he's been featured in animation and on television and the fact that we've never even given him a shot at an ongoing series, I think it's something worth considering in the future. I look at several of our team books, and in particular Justice Society and Teen Titans, and I think each one of them can have more material coming from them. I'll post a link in the show notes uh, to the full article. 2010 is the 30th anniversary of the Wolfman Perez new Teen Titans, and along with the Titans games, original graphic novel that I talked about in last episode, I can see how now that the JLA and JSA have had franchise reboots, that the Titans could be or would be or should be next. In many ways, this is similar to what happened over at Marvel. Uh, for years, the X-Universe led the Marvel Universe in terms of like their major events and so forth and, and popularity and sales until Avengers disassembled and until Bendis took over. And suddenly the Avengers are back to being Marvel's go-to book. With the Titans... They ruled in the 80s and uh, for some of the early 90s, not much. But right now, the team books to beat are JLA and JSA. Uh, really, the, the, you know, the flagship title that is pushing the DC Universe right now is the, is the Green Lantern line, Green Lantern and Green Lantern Corps and Blackest Night. So what will it take to bring the Titans back out of lethargy? Um, the Dio's comments there at the end there about how Justice Society and Teen Titans could – they could mine more material coming from them. I think that's a mistake. I think they've actually sort of uh, diluted the Titans franchise. They had Teen Titans. They had Titans. They did a Cyborg miniseries, a Raven miniseries, um, Teen Titans Year One, which was actually pretty good. 
and some other things that Titan is special and so forth. So, um, oh, terror, the terror Titans, the Ravager backup. Uh, so I think there's some, something to say about sort of streamlining the universe, not blowing it up. I think that would be a mistake. I think those characters work because they, they work in a team setting and giving individual characters ongoing series, um, may build your corner of the universe, uh, you know, the Titans corner of the universe, but I think that's a mistake. I, the last thing the Titans universe needs is an explosion of, uh, I, of new titles when the core concept has been failing for the last, you know, couple years. Uh, you know, I would like to see a, a streamlined version, whether it's just called uh, Titans and you incorporate everything or you you keep the Teen Titans book and the Titans book and that's it uh, and somehow sort of manage to make it all work together. So um, I say thumbs down to an expansion. Whenever it comes time to talk about sort of revitalizing a concept, they, people like to go backwards and and bring former creative teams into the mix. Uh, I think Marv Wolfman has had his say on this run. He wrote, you know, over 16 years of Titans, and he's pretty awesome when he comes back and does these sort of like short stories and in anniversaries and things like that. But I'm not sure he's he would be able to really sort of do what the the book needs at this time. Certainly bringing Perez back for covers uh, is an instant draw. I don't think his artwork is what the book needs right now either. So here's um, my challenge to you guys out there, the listeners out there, guys and girls. Uh, Name a creative team that has yet to work on the book, on the Titans book, Teen Titans book, on any of the books, that you think could restore the Titans to um, a more prominent corner of the DC universe. A creative team that's working in comics now that you think could restore the Titans back to greatness. So there you go. That's your homework for this episode. Coming soon. The red skies are just the beginning. To iPods across the multiverse. The threat is a wave of antimatter that moves between universes. Footnotes production you dare not miss. Please, monitor, stop me from hurting you. You know I can't do that, Lila. My name is Harbinger. Worlds will live. Barry? Have to keep running. Worlds will die. Time to save the world. Ah. Iris. CGS presents The Crisis Tapes. Supergirl! Save Superman. You understand? The Transformer! You've got to just do as I say! To turn in the midst of battle! That is a fatal mistake! The CGS podcast will never be the same. The New Teen Titans, number one, all new, cover date November 1980, first collector's item issue, 25 pages of all new action with the supergroup you demanded. Well, not really. The title of this episode is Third Time's the Charm for a reason. Um, After the Teen Titans debut in Brave and the Bold 54, June and July of 1964, which at that time they were unnamed as a team. They would eventually find a name and then wound up in their own series, 
where the number one issue kicked off in 1966. That series ran for 43 issues, and it was put on hiatus in 1973, leading to a second run where it would continue the numbering, and that started back up again in 1976. When those final issues proved not to really light the world on fire, the Titans corner of the DC Universe came to an end, and that was uh, 1978. While that was sort of no problem for Robin, who would go on to guest star in like the Batman family, Batman, Super Friends, and Detective, etc., that left Wonder Girl, Kid Flash, and all the other Teen Titans roster out in, basically, out in the cold. So enter Marv Wolfman and Len Wein. Marvin and Len were comic fans and friends for many, many years um, who wanted to break into the comics world. Both of them started at DC and then eventually would move to Marvel to be major players during the 70s Bronze Age of Marvel Comics. Soon after that, both of them wound up back at DC, uh, late 70s, you know, like in 1979, 1980, after both of them had major disputes with Marvel's chaotic management at that time. So they developed um, a loose idea pitch that they would bring to then-DC publisher Jeanette Kahn. And that pitch was for a revitalization of a new Titan series. When Jeanette asked why they would want to revive a title that no one cared about, Wolfman answered, because we'll do it better. And of course, in that pitch, uh, Wolfman would be writer and Len would be editor. So you can't do a book without an artist, so enter George Perez. He was the artist that Marv approached from their limited collaborations together at Marvel in the 70s. He knew he could handle team books, and he knew that even though he was a young artist in the in the couple handful of years, five, six years, he worked at uh, Marvel or that Marvel was familiar with his work at Marvel, he had grown. He had shown so much growth and potential in that time. Perez is obviously no stranger to team books, and he was hoping to come to D.C. to do JLA. He wanted to do the Justice League of America book. He agreed to do the Titans book, especially because everyone felt that the the new book probably would only last about six issues. At that time, most DC books, most new DC books only ran a course of like six issues, maybe a year. And they weren't necessarily – it wasn't that they sort of doubted their abilities, but in that time, they just figured, well, we'll most likely get six, ash, six issues out of this run. So let's – so Paris was like, why not? He went off to start working on designs from what Marvin Len had come up with. Um, as pages started to come in, as designs started to come in and concepts started to come in, DC started to get really excited, ordered up a 16-page preview as a, as a precursor to the ongoing series, and promotion just began in their books. They started putting ads in. And um, that's when the hate mail began. The supergroup you demanded, as the title says, not entirely. Marv reflected that in some interviews I've read and on his site that fan mail arrived before number one even hit stands, criticizing it for changing the name, for changing the cast, for the design of the characters, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And all they basically probably saw by that point was maybe a cover, maybe something else, not too far from what goes on in the Internet age today. But that didn't obviously that didn't stop the first issue from coming out, and the preview hit, the first issue hit, and eventually the new Teen Titans would become DC's best-selling title. It would become a major success. It would push DC into a whole new age, 
and um, the rest, as they say, is history. So what was so special about number one? Let's find out. So first, the cover. If you were a DC fan, and I talked a little bit about this with the preview, if you were a DC fan and hadn't read the 16-page preview, you you would recognize on this cover Robin, Kid Flash, and Wonder Girl. In fact, they're in terms of the design of their cover of this cover, they're pretty prominent in where they're focused. Um, I would probably guess that maybe readers might have known who the green kid was turn, turning into uh, a tiger in this issue on, on this cover. Um, even though he might have a different costume, he's got a green head, is a green animal. It's got to be Beast Boy from the old Teen Titans series who would guest star every now and then, who was a, a, t- a member of Teen Titans West. Um, you probably wouldn't know his name by now, um, but uh, you would probably go, oh, that must be Beast Boy. Beast Boy, cool, he's on the team. I'm not sure if they were like, uh, outside of the 16-page preview and the one ad that features this cover that was going on throughout DC's books, I don't know if there was some comic magazine out at this time that sent out previews. Maybe DC sent out previews. So all I know, all I'm going with is just, you know, sort of what I can see um, from books around this time. Um, The other characters on this cover, you know, you got the female girl. She looks gold. She has brown hair. Looks like an alien. Um, There's a black character with metal all on his body. And in the background is... Uh, a girl in a cloak and a hood and who kind of looks like she could be Phantom Stranger's daughter. Um, And then there's all these alien hands all over the place. So that's pretty much all you get on the cover, but it's a pretty good cover as as far as first issues go. It shows the team um, pretty clearly. The costumes sort of reveals kind of their powers in in very um, subtle ways. Starfire obviously is shooting a bolt. Kid Flash has speed lines behind him, so you know he can probably run. Um, <clears throat> Raven is like puffing into from a cloud of smoke. Um, Changeling is changing into this tiger. Cyborg has one of his hands has like um, energy and Kirby dots coming out of it, and Wonder Girl is wielding her magic lasso. So, and Robin's just running because you know he's human. So you know, pretty descriptive. Um, the logo itself, New Teen Titans, is pretty cool. It became pretty iconic. And this cover actually has been homaged um, many, many times. It's been uh, reproduced not only by Paris but other artists. And uh, some of those covers include uh, New, New Titans 130, and that's cover date of February of 1996. That would actually be the final issue of this era of Titans. Um, the series that we're looking at, New Teen Titans, would go on for a number of issues into the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Somewhere along there, around like 59, though, it started. It would reprint the volume two of the New Teen Titans, which is affectionately called the Baxter Run, which started in 1984. And although it ran concurrently with this series, the original series, for about maybe a year or more, um, that would go on up through issue 49. It would become the New Titans by issue 50, and then that title, New Titans, would continue on through, uh, like I said, issue 130. Uh, The last issue of that cover, I mean, the last issue of that had a cover that homaged this number one issue, and it had all these characters and and any new sort of Titans character that popped up by then. It wasn't comprehensive, but uh, it's a nice little bookend to the series. It was done by Perez, 
the only character, the only, okay, the three characters that are sort of in the same position are Wonder Girl, although in that last, in issue 130 on that cover, she's a dark star. Cyborg is there in his technus look, in his very weird alien cyborg look. Changeling is there. In the place of Robin is Speedy. In the place of Starfire is Kyle Rayner. In place of Raven is Starfire, even though you see Raven's um, soul self behind her, and that's part of, there's there's a story point to that. Terra is also in the mix, um, and then um, there's also an, another alien techno being, uh, forget, I think his name is Jared or something like that, I forget. And way in the background is another Tamaranian who is one of Starfire's people, and I believe that's her husband at that time. So it's, you know, you, oh, there's also Blackfire, forgot forgot, who is uh, Starfire's sister. So, um Really, you know, we'll, who knows when we'll get to that, but I won't go bother explaining that. You can look it up. Um, another cover that was a, a spin on the first issue of this series is Titan Secret Files and Origins number one, cover date of March 1999, and that's by Tom Rainey and Phil Jimenez. On that cover, it uh, looks like Starfire, Flash, Nightwing, Cyborg, uh, kind of Wonder Girl, but not really in her Troya costume. Um, they all pretty much are in the same position. And then also included in that mix is Damage, uh, Speedy, although he was going by Arsenal at that time, Jesse Quick, and Argent. Uh, so that uh, that's from the Titan Secret Files and Origins number one. Then we have a, a, a sort of strange spin from cover date of July 2002, and it comes from the 10th Muse series, the first issue of the 10th Muse from Tidal Wave Studios or Avatar Press. It is a variant um, cover, uh, and it was by Roger Cruz, Paul Mounts, and Eddie Wagner. And Wolfman actually was the writer on this series, and it featured, I assume, characters of the 10th Muse, but it's very clearly a bunch of characters running with a cityscape behind them and hands coming from the foreground in towards them. So um, that was another um, spin. And I'll put all these images up on the, on the forum talkback thread, probably. Let's see. Then we go to uh, the year 2003 when DC produced the collected edition of the New Teen Titans, Terror of Trigon, Terror of Trigon trade paperback. And that was by Phil Jimenez. And that featured evil versions of the Titans in their respective positions. And the hands reaching toward them were actually the real Titans' hands. So it's a pretty cool cover. It's a pretty creepy cover. Um, clever concept, clever switch on, on, on the idea. Then we go to September 2003, cover date, Teen Titans number one. This is the Jeff Johns, Mike McCone run. And their third printing was a spin on this first series on this first cover and it featured all the characters such as Starfire, Raven, Cyborg and Changeling in their respective positions. But the other characters, Wonder Girl, Kid Flash and Robin were the new characters. Robin was Tim Drake, Wonder Girl was Cassie Sandsmark and Kid Flash was Bart, Bart Allen. Also in the mix is thrown in the um, clone Superboy. So that was the promotional material that they used for that series. 
and also was one of the variant covers. So that's pretty cool that they that they did that. We go to May 2005, the Overstreet, the official Overstreet comic book price guide number 35. Uh, it's a cover by Perez himself with colors by Tom Smith. In honor of the 25th anniversary, he basically recreated his famous image or his uh, iconic image and uh, put all the characters in their same position. Just gave it a sort of update, updated look, some recoloring and such. Uh, but it is a, a, a definite new take on the old cover. We moved to cover date February 2006. The Transformers Beast Wars The Gathering Number 1 from IDW by Don Figueroa. It's a loose sort of homage to this cover, but you can see it, especially because there's a white tiger on the bottom and sort of just sort of how certain characters are posed, like the where Starfire would be and where Robin would be and, and Cyborg. They're very similar, even though the perspective is a little off or the characters are in different planes of foreground and background. But uh, that that's very much a, an homage to this. Before that, we go back to August 2005, Teen Titans 25, the same series by Jeff Johns and Mike McCone. It's uh, a cover that looks like their variant in their promotional art for their number one, but it, you can tell it's totally recreated uh, and not just copied. And in the foreground, though, instead of Robin rubbing, running towards us, um, Superboy, who has now been taken over by Luthor and is bald, is grabbing Robin and is ready to like punch his lights out. So, uh, And in the background are these characters. We go to January 2007, Teen Titans issue 41 by Tony Daniel. And you can see, again, it's a little, the background is different. It's just the tower and they're sort of splayed out differently, but it's very much uh, an homage. You can see certain characters in certain positions there. Uh, we go to June of 2009, the Teen Titans Annual 1, and this features characters such as Wonder Girl, but also Aqua Girl, Kid Eternity, Beetle. Same idea, a bunch of characters running towards you with the tower in the background. And finally, um, just recently, just out last week, January of 2010, cover date, Teen Titans 77, which is a Blackest Night tie-in, and it features all the dead characters, all the dead Titans characters. And they are all in the same position, positioning, and, and the same mix as um, on the original cover. And but uh, obviously, instead of Robin and Wonder Girl and um, Kid Flash, it's it's characters like Hawk and the deceased Aqua Girl and Panther and Phantasm and Wildebeest, and and they're all Black Lanternified. And Joe Bennett's a, the artist on that. So even to this day. Almost 30, 30 years later, that cover is being recreated. Okay, as for the issue itself, the credits are Marv Wolfman, plotter, scripter, George Perez, penciler, inker, Romeo Tangle, letterer, Ben Oda, colorist, Adrian Roy, and editor, Len Wein. And there is a title to it. I guess if you count the first page, the first splash page, it just says the new Teen Titans, so all new heroes, all new thrills. So we can go pretty much for that. They also list Marv Wolfman and George Perez as co-creators. And um, uh, so I, I'm going to read a synopsis of it. And um, I'm getting the synopsis from the official Teen Titans Index, which was a five-issue series in 1985. And it was from Independent Comics Group. And uh, the editors were Murray Ward and Kat Ironwood. And if that name sounds familiar, she is a staple in uh, the many 
up-and-coming independent publishers of the 80s. She definitely is a person, a major figure in comics history, especially in the 80s and 90s. So, um, yeah, they put out this series, this index, and they put out many other indexes um, at the time. I know there's a Justice League one, a Hawkman one, some Marvel ones, Crisis one. So uh, these are pretty cool little indexes, They, you know, for if you want quick hit information. Um, fairly very accurate, and um, they reproduce the cover. So, so this is where I'm getting the synopsis from, and uh, it reads for this issue. Starfire, a.k.a. Princess Coriander of the planet Tamaran, escapes from Commander Trogar and his Gordanian slavers and crash lands on Earth. To help her, Raven, a mysterious young woman possessing empathic powers, reorganizes the disbanded Teen Titans. The heroes she recruits include Robin, Kid Flash, Wonder Girl, and Changeling, the former Beast Boy, plus a new member, Cyborg, a black ex-athlete whose body has been rebuilt with mechanical parts. Together, the new Teen Titans battle the Gordanians in the United Nations Plaza, but fail to prevent the recapture of Starfire. Invading the alien ship, the Titans rescue Starfire once again, and Cyborg and Changeling sabotage their craft, causing it to explode. So, first up, the very first page is a splash page, as I talked about. And um, the first thing you should know about that splash page, that it has actually been reproduced as a cover by Perez for New Titans issue 50, which is a cover date of DC 1988. And it was the first part of the Who is Wonder Girl story arc that would reunite Wolfman and Perez at that time on interiors after Perez had been away for almost four years. On this splash page in this issue... We see these Gordanians sort of reaching over a cityscape in a very Doom, Dr. Doom coming over Latveria at the Fantastic Four kind of way. And uh, we see Cyborg and Kid Flash and and Robin is holding Starfire. And then we see Changeling and Wonder Girl. In that cover image years later, Robin would be holding Wonder Girl. So it's a nice little homage to itself. We'll meet all these people in the issue. So other than that, nothing, nothing more to say. Then we go to pages two through four, and we're introduced to the character who will become known as Starfire. We learn several things on these pages. We learn that her name is Coriander, and yes, Wolfman did take that after the Spice Coriander. Uh, We learn that she's a princess and that she's trained by the warlords of Okara, that she has star bolts, and she calls out uh, a name uh, spelled X apostrophe H-A-L, um, which we can assume is maybe a god that she prays to, Exhal, I guess. I'm never really sure of the pronunciation of that, but I always say Exhal. Exhal. Um, <clears throat> we also learn that in this world, we don't, we're not quite sure where we are in space, but uh, we know they like to use a lot of apostrophes because Coriander has an apostrophe in her name. The slave ship that she's escaping from is the Questar, or Quistar, and that has two apostrophes. Uh, her goddess Exhale has uh, uh, an apostrophe in it, and uh, just a lot of a lot of apostrophes. So, I guess that was the thing to do if you wanted to come up with alien names at that time. Concerning Starfire herself, Paris already is working in the whole thing about when she flies, her hair, her very long hair gets into like a, a streak of flames or, or, or energy behind her. In this issue, in this page, on these two pages, it is very fiery. It looks very, hence her, her, hence her name, Starfire. I know in later issues it won't quite look as flame-looking, but for now, the streaky hair does exist. He also is sort of setting up her 
her star bolts, they have a, a particular design to them as well, where they look like there's these little pulses running through it. And the sound effect used, although here it's Screek, I think it will be changed to just Scree, S-K-R-E. So all these things are sort of being set up. Now, we don't know what world this is in. We know that there's these are Gordanians, um, the, the aliens that she's escaping from, these green lizard frog-looking things. And if you are a DC fan at this time, maybe you might have picked up that this is a, a spinoff of uh, Wolfman's ideas over in Superman and Green Lantern uh, with the Omega Man and where they come from, which is the Vega universe, the Vega star system, basically. And there's this whole other world where the Omega Men, whole other galaxy that the Omega Men are from called Vega. And um, that's a star that they revolve around, Vega, which is an actual star. And uh, same thing with like the Citadel, which includes the Scions, the Gordanians, the Warlords of Okara. And we'll meet all these people throughout the series. Now, if you read the Invasion crossover that DC did in the late 80s, a lot of these characters will show up in that book. And if you've, certainly if you've read the Omega Men, that, um, that series that uh, Keith Giffen worked on, and um, I think it was edited by Marv Wolfman since he came up with the ideas. Obviously, they would be that was a huge exploration of the Vega system. So that's – although we don't know that now because they don't actually mention Vega in the book, um, that's where story uh, Starfire comes from. Also curiously, on page two, it opens and it says epilogue, not prologue, but epilogue. So I don't know if that's if that means – did he mean that as an epilogue to the preview, the 16-page preview that already came out, or was that a mistake? Because um, it shouldn't be epilogue, I assume. It should be prologue. So I don't know what it would be an epilogue to other than the preview. So that was kind of a – and this isn't a flashback pay sequence. This is, this is happening in real time. So, yeah, kind of strange that they use that. The other thing about this opening scene – um, from pages two to four, is that, you know, because it's set in space, it already sort of sets itself off from the original Teen Titans series. Um, yeah, they dealt with aliens and things like that, but this has a very, this is a very different feel. I mean, it's almost Star Wars in, in some aspect, or maybe even Star Trek. So I could see right away, you know, especially 1980, right? It's, it, Star Wars is very fresh in everybody's mind, so is Star, Star Trek. So that's um, probably wasn't a bad, it was probably a very good sequence just to open this book with. Um, introduce a new character, uh, some a new conflict, and just sort of sets apart sets apart this book from from the series before it. All right, then we move to page five through seven, and we go to Dick Grayson, and this is where he and Raven officially meet, and this is a, a definite nod to the sixteen page preview. And um, she's the one who tells Robin about a new Titans has to be formed and et cetera. And um, there's some interesting things about this sequence here. So we're introduced to Raven as she puffs in as Dick Grayson is having this nightmare. And she gets him to call Kid Flash, who is away at college. He has to also gather people up because they're unknown forces at work, forces which demand that a new Teen Titans be formed. So, first off, Dick Grayson is not at Wayne Manor, but rather at the Wayne Foundation in Midtown Gotham City. And this is the big white building with the fake tree in the middle, and uh, up on top is like the penthouse of, of Bruce Wayne and Dick Grayson. And that penthouse will eventually become the headquarters for the Batman and the Outsiders team. 
um, cool sort of DC iconic image, the Wayne Foundation building. And I'm um, pretty sure I read somewhere that Len Wayne actually created the Wayne Foundation. I'm not sure if he created this building, but he created uh, the Wayne Foundation. And the Wayne Foundation goes back all the way to Detective Comics issue 328. Also, in the dialogue, although Raven says the New Teen Titans, Dick Grayson very much is always saying New Titans. He says, not again, no New Titans, no, no more. And then in another panel, he says, always a New Titans fighting the same awful menace. The cover says New Teen Titans, but, you know, several times in here, they just call it the New Titans. I don't know. I guess, you know, who would refer to, refer to themselves as teens? I, I don't know. But uh, just a curious little thing there. In the panel that shows Dick dreaming... Uh, and then he wakes up in the next panel. He does say Nightmare. And that was the title of the 16-page preview from DC Comics Presents 26, Where Nightmares Begin. He's also shirtless. And uh, I know that maybe that sounds odd to sort of pick out. But in a lot of comics, whenever anybody's in bed, they're always wearing pajamas. But Dick Grayson's always shirtless. And he's like, not only is he shirtless here, but he's usually always shirtless. And that, that will actually play out in later issues um, concerning him, his relationship with Starfire. When he finally manages to put on his Robin suit and go check out what Raven is talking about, he passes Bruce Wayne, and there's a, an interesting bit of dialogue here. Bruce Wayne says, something wrong, Dick? You're in costume. Need any help? And Dick Grayson turns and says, help? Not at all, Bruce. This is one thing I can handle by, by myself. And it's a panel. He's Dick Grayson sort of looking over his shoulder in his domino mask, and he looks kind of like he's scowling. And even on the next page, he says, Bruce has been mad ever since I dropped out of college. He still thinks of me as a kid. Well, that's his hang-up. I know what I'm doing. Maybe this New Titans, there again, he says New Titans, coming up right now is a good idea. I can use a place where I can prove myself. Already setting up, here's where I was talking about earlier. This is already setting up what eventually will become a, a rift between Dick Grayson and Bruce Wayne, and um, or even Batman and Robin, you could say. And you got to love Bruce Wayne's appearance here. Because he's in like a smoking jacket and a scarf and he's smoking a pipe. and Very, very old, old Bruce Wayne, old Batman, even like Golden Age. It feels Golden Age Batman to me. Um, it's kind of a, a fun, silly picture. Considering that Dick Grayson's already was sleeping and Bruce Wayne is up reading a book and not out patrolling his Batman. So whatever. But uh, it's kind of fun and silly. But uh, yeah, you know, Robin already sort of, he dropped out of Hudson College. And that caused some contention between the two. And Wolfman was very much playing with that. And in using Dick Grayson in the series, Wolfman very much wanted to control, not control Dick Grayson, but he wanted this to be the book that would uh, determine what all other Dick Grayson appearances would be based off of. So he very much wanted Robin in this book as the lead, as the team leader. And um, if anything was going to happen to him, it was going to happen to him in this book. And be reflected elsewhere, not the other way around. So this is already starting to happen, already starting to remove him from Batman, from the shadow of Batman. Uh, also, Paris's Paris's design of Robin, the mask, will change over the course of the the issues. But right now, it seems very almost old school, where the domino mask was sort of wrapped around his almost his whole head, even though it's not. It's just sort of around his eyes, but it has sort of a look like that. Um, when he rides away, he's riding off in his Robin cycle, and that's just, come on, that's just awesome, a Robin cycle, you know. That's the th one thing I love about the DC. They're not afraid to have invisible jets and Robin cycles and big buildings with fake trees in the middle and 
um, the Supermobile and um, you know Batmobile and just all that stuff. Just so much fun. Ted Cord's big blue beetle bug. Um, so it's a, just a cool little fun image. So Robin rides off, and pages seven through nine, um, we 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 see Wonder Girl who is revisiting her origin, basically what she knows to this point. She's She just knows that she was found in a fire in an apartment building, and she was rescued by Wonder Woman, taken to Paradise Island, where she would become an Amazon, an honorary Amazon, and would eventually join the Teen Titans and then wind up, you know, in, in this building, um, trying to retrace her origins. Again, another theme that would move throughout this book is the identity wonder wonder girl's real identity where she comes from who her real parents were um it's interesting to note that wonder woman here i can't really tell but it sort of looks like the breastplate breastplate that wonder woman is using is the eagle not the w the the ww yet i can't really tell but it sort of looks that way i know wonder woman around this time would get sort of a revamp uh, a new design, a new look, a new creative team. So I'm not sure which one she's using. Um, Hippolyta at this time is called Hippolyte, spelled with an E. And she has blonde hair, so this is definitely pre-crisis, um, where Wonder Woman's mother had blonde hair, not black hair like she does after crisis. So this origin will be fully explained. I actually did a footnotes on Donna Troy's origin way back, so I can put that in the show notes as well if anybody's interested. I love the way Perez draws Wonder Woman, uh, Wonder Girl. She's um, kind of uh, stocky, especially in these earlier issues. But uh, eventually, she'll he'll he'll move away from that. But she's always she's not as um, tall and 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 I don't want to say thin, but she she definitely feels a little bit stockier than even Wonder Woman. So the Robin meets up with her, and so does uh, this green animal that Wonder Girl doesn't recognize yet who turns out to be Beast Boy. She calls him Beast Boy, but he announces himself as Changeling in a whole new costume, and which is kind of slightly similar to his Doom Patrol costume, but not quite. And um, um, he is the class clown of the group. Um, I just noticed that... Uh, okay, so he becomes this green dog and jumps up in Wonder Girl's arms, calling her beautiful, beautiful, and then, so she drops him when when he changes back to human, and you see a sound effect that sound effect that says "bump." And then in the next panel, he's rubbing his butt, and you see two stars coming off of it. So I thought that was kind of funny. It's a very comic strip kind of thing to do. Um, so it's kind of funny. Good for Perez. So the three of them are there and wondering why they're all together when Kid Flash makes an appearance. Now earlier, when Robin called Kid Flash, he was like, no way, I got college, you dropped out of Hudson University, you dropped out, I can't, I'm going full time, so I don't want I don't want in on this Titans thing. And then lo and behold, he shows up, and he's in his Kid Flash costume with brown hair, which is, uh, which was a, a thing that he did. Instead, he has red hair, but when he became, as Wally West, but when he became Kid Flash, he would, I don't know, dye it or whatever. Or maybe when the costume came out of the ring, it created something that turned his hair brown. It's like a um, to hide a secret identity. So I'm curious to see how long this lasts because I don't remember. I wonder when they actually get rid of the brown hair and just stick him back into the into the his normal red hair. Because even on the cover, he's got brown hair. 
And he's now gung-ho. He's like, you know, you're all here, like Raven said. Let's do it. I'm here. You brief the other. Let's go. We got to go rescue her. Boom, boom, boom. Done. So Wolfman and Paris set up right here. Here are the four characters that you know from the Teen Titans series. Kid Flash, Robin, Wonder Girl, and Beast Boy, now named Changeling. So this is a nice sort of like... um, comfortable feeling if you're getting into this series it's like oh, okay here are characters that i know let's see what happens and by the way there there is a lot of red in all of their costumes robin has his red tunic wonder girl's unitard is red changeling although he has the white stripes the base of it is red and then kid flash has the red legs the boots um the earpieces and the uh, flash symbol on his chest all red so there's a lot of red on these four characters and then you'll notice the other characters don't have any red at all. Starfire, Raven, and Cyborg, no red. So very interesting, just like just so many primary colors in those um, older characters. And, and if you think about Superman, red, yellow, and blue. Wonder, Wonder Woman, red, yellow, and blue. Um, Flash, red, you know, like red and blue. The Golden Age Flash, red, yellow, and blue. So a lot of those times the coloring was very kind of simple, so they had to use very basic primary com- colors. But then as you move along... In the industry and in the years, they're able to use different colors and the printing kind of stands out. So um, so it's kind of interesting that those older characters are, their base color is usually always red. So then we move to page 10 through 12 and we are introduced to Cyborg, who is at Newark City College in New Jersey. And he's bemoaning the fact that he's been turned into this cyborg, half man, uh, half machine, and he's talking to his coach about how he could have been, he he was Olympic material, he was the best all-around athlete, and then this app to happen, and the coach just can't allow him to play because it just be would be unfair. He has unfair, he has um, advantages to him being in the state, and it just doesn't sit well with Cyborg, and he blames his father because his father is the one who turned him into this freak, and if you've read the 16-page preview, obviously that comes up. If you didn't, we'll learn this uh, as the series goes. And this is the third character now that has had something in his past that deals with family. So Cyborg blames his father for turning him into his freak. Wonder Girl has no idea who her parents are. And Robin, with his foster father at this time, uh, is have, they, they're having a little you know battle of wills. So Wolfman was very keen about making this book about... Uh, family issues and as these characters because they're teenagers as they grow up they're going to move away from their family they're going to move away from the people that they've been trapped under for a long time and that's certainly true of robin because he's the sidekick to batman wonder girl because she's the sidekick to wonder woman and kid flash because he's the sidekick to flash so those themes are going to be recurring and a lot of the villains in the titans universe are either the father of somebody or the sister of somebody or they belong to them in in some way or there's some tie familial tie so that that's that becomes a, a strong aspect of this book and which set set this book apart from a lot of the other dc books at the time cyborg says um he is made of unshatterable molybdenum steel which is an actual which is real it's not made up that'll eventually get changed and he'll get um, body parts made up of some fake DC Universe cool metal. But um, for now, it's a, a very real, real steel. And Cyborg meets Raven, and then he meets all the uh, other ones to date, all the other Titans that we've seen so far. 
and um, they all agree to rush off and and help whatever it is that Raven's talking about. Um, she says here, uh, I'm receiving um, the psychic waves of our final Titan. She has arrived on Earth, but her pursuers are close behind. So uh, Changing even makes a, a quip here. He says, she is it too late to pray that she's stacked. And oh, Changeling, those are famous last words. Then we move to pages 13 through 15, and this is the battle where the Gordanians have come to Earth following Starfire. She's actually nowhere to be seen. There's a huge battle going on at the United Nations Plaza between the Gordanians and the Titans. And this is your main action sequence in the book. This is sort of to show what each of them can do. Uh, Kid Flash can run, but he can fight. Wonder Girl has Amazonian training, which she uses. Robin, who's human, has his training. Changeling it becomes a snake and wraps around one of them. Uh, Cyborg has hand attachments. At this, in this issue, they seem to always be focusing on his hand um, more than anything. Um, and uh, on page 15, there are three panels. Uh, it's a very Paris thing where it's um, they're all the same length. They go right across the top of this page, divided into threes. And you can see certain things happen, like Kid Flash is spinning a bunch of Gordanians. In the second panel, he runs away, and they're sort of just hanging in midair. And then in the third panel, they land with a thud. Or Robin is fighting with um, a staff that he's stolen from one of the Gordanians, and he smacks one, then smacks another, and then on the third panel, he's just standing there. Oh, by the way, Kid Flash doesn't disappear. He he spins. In the second panel, he runs to punch another Gordanian, and uh, in the third panel, they're all... They basically won so far. So it's a pretty cool sequence of events there uh, in terms of Perez's art. Back on page 13, Wonder Girl says, Merciful Minerva. And at this time in Wonder Woman continuity, until Perez takes it over after the crisis, they mix a lot of Greek and Roman gods. So although she would say, you know, Great Hera, um, she she would say things like Merciful Minerva, which is actually the Roman version of the Greek god Athena. So they kind of mixed their mythology, and that was something that Perez, when he eventually joined, when he eventually revamped the Wonder Woman series, he was determined that everything had to be correct. So it wasn't Hercules, it was Heracles, which is the Greek version. And it wasn't Minerva, it was Athena. And he made sure to, to keep all that very consistent. And uh, something I applauded because I love Greek mythology. Along with those three panels that I talked about on page 14, you get um, six panels, and each of them have a different Titans except for Cyborg, who has two. And you're starting to see a lot of their fighting skills, like I said, but Paris was very keen on developing very specific and individual fighting skills. So we'll see that develop, that certain characters move certain ways, and, and Wonder Girl especially when she's in flight or, or or depending on what kind of weapon she has, she fights very differently from, say, Starfire. Uh, Robin fights very differently from Kid Flash and so on and so forth. So you're going to see a lot of that develop, and that page is a nice early example of that. We also learn at the end of this, the last panel on page 15, Raven says, My soul must once more become part of me to have body and soul separate for more than five of your minutes, 
would subject me to horrors too terrible to speak. So this is like the old Aquaman curse, right? Can't be out of water for more than 60 minutes or you're going to start to die. So her thing is uh, her soul self, which she can send out as a guide or to battle or to travel in. Uh, if, she's, if it's away from her body for more than five minutes, something will happen. And this is the mystery of Raven that we don't know. We won't learn for another, I guess, about two, three issues about really what's going on with her, why she brought these this team together, and what's her deal, and sort of what, what is her family crisis that happens. Um, just like all the other ones sort of have family things, she, she has one as well. Then we move to pages 16 through 19, and we find out where Starfire actually is. She was rescued by a guy named Grant Wilson and taken to his apartment. And this is the second time in the book that Starfire is referred to as a golden girl, and that'll come up, obviously, issue after issue. So Grant brings her to this apartment, and um, he shares it with his girlfriend, Carol, and she's flipping out because Grant cheats on her and their relationship is at the end. And here's this alien, basically, that he brings. And um, there's there's a story here. Well, I'll talk a little bit more a little bit later. But um, obviously there's a reason why we're focusing in on this character, Grant Wilson. But um, – and it's there's it's sort of hinted at here where Carol is like, um, besides lately you've changed those new friends of yours. And he says – yeah, what about them? They're going to help me, help me make a fortune. Um, so we'll learn about them in this issue, but we'll really learn about them next issue. Um, but uh, so let me, I'll come back to that in a second. Those top four panels on page 16, as we, as Paris sort of sets an establishing shot, you can see as he, he sets it way up. So you see the roof a little bit closer. So you're looking through the window of the roof and a little bit closer even still, to Starfire, and then the fourth panel is right to her face. Um, he loves to use camera angles like that, and um, I love to point them out because I just think they're really cool and they're interesting, and they, they give a sense of, of movement, and uh, uh, it's a really nice creative, um, just a creative tool in Perez's arsenal. So Raven's the first to show up in this apartment because she has sensed Starfire, and they're attacked by a Gordanian that basically just wipes them out. Um, and then the other Titans arrive, Kid Flash, uh, Cyborg, changing all the rest of them. And this Gordanian spins this thing and suddenly this warp shows up in the middle of the apartment and it sucks Kid Flash in. And Cyborg's trying to rescue them and rescue and Changeling. And then Wonder Girl and Robin show up and she lassos them and tries to pull them out from the warp. And then eventually it just explodes and um, wrecks the apartment and Grant Wilson says, hey, you creeps busted up this place. What are you going to do about it? Robin says, you'll be compensated, friend. Now kindly take your hand off me. And Carol says, you're the one who brought that girl here, Grant. It's not their fault. It's yours. And the caption says, Grant Wilson feels his rage build, a rage that will not quickly abate. So in true comic book form, uh, somebody was slighted by a hero and they will eventually run off and become, you know, one of their arch enemies. So very comic book cliche, uh, but uh, again, another little seed that will play out in next issue. It's kind of funny where Robin says you'll be compensated. Um, obviously, Robin is rich because he's the ward of Bruce Wayne, so he's got money. We'll learn that Wonder Girl actually does have money, and we'll learn that Changeling actually had a lot of money too. Probably the only ones that are sort of maybe not rich, I would say, are Kid Flash. Maybe Cyborg might have some money if his dad makes money working with Star Labs and such like that, but... 
um, definitely Robin, Wonder Girl, and Changeling, especially Changeling, Changeling, um, they are super rich. So for him to say that, you know, you'll be compensated, um, he means that. He, you know, he'll get Wayne Industries on it and they'll find him a new apartment or fix it up in no time. And then the next sequence, page 20 and 21, finds Starfire back, captured again by the Gordanians. And we, the Titans appear on their ship. And throughout the book, Kid Flash has just been really sort of like antsy and headstrong. And um, he says here, uh, Robin says, he's talking about Raven, blast it, she's gone again. She always vanishes just before a fight. And Kid Flash says, she's doing her job, Robin. Why don't you do yours and quit complaining? And Wonder Girl notices, I don't think Kid Flash likes you putting Raven down. Robin says, yeah, I noticed, Wonder Girl. I noticed. And then even in the next page, uh, Wonder Girl's like, Raven still hasn't explained why we're after this girl. Kid Flash says, I'm sure she has a reason, and that's good enough for me. So he's he has, you know, for somebody who said he didn't want to get back into the superhero game and certainly didn't want to get back into the Titans game, he is in it whole hog and is in it to win it. You know, like, how you can't put down Raven, right? Like, um, that's he just won't allow it. And um, I'm not sure if this plays out in later issues because I, I haven't read ahead. But there is a, a book I'm going to talk about later that um, will sort of set up exactly what is going on between Kid Flash and Raven. We then move to pages 22 and 23, and the way Perez has laid this out is that um, the panels run all the way across both pages. So there's like three sections, and you read all across the top one, all across the middle one, and all across the bottom one. And uh, it's a nice little design thing. Um, uh, it's Paris sort of flexing his his artistic muscles. Um, we see we also get some insights, some more insights into who these characters are. Like Kid Flash says, I thought I'd quit playing superhero, but there was no way I could turn down Raven. Um, Changeling says, I'm wasting my wit on these jokers. Still, if I stopped, I'd probably go bazonkers. The jokes are the only things, only thing that keeps me from coming unglued. Uh, Cyborg, while talking with Raven, says, he's talking about his father. He says, yeah, he trained me and I hated it, just like he turned me into this half-human garbage can, and I hate this too. I never wanted to be a walking, talking tinker toy. Um, I just wanted to be human, and he stole that humanity from me without even asking. Uh, so we're getting like you know a lot of little insights. Uh, um, Robin talks about the team. He says we're untested. We barely even know each other. Yet we're already a team, a team where Robin isn't always preceded by Batman and. So again, this sort of pushing Robin away from Batman, making him his own character, making him his own man. Because a lot of these character again, these characters are teenagers by this point. I believe the way they have it is that. Uh, Cyborg is the oldest one at this time. Maybe he might be around like 19. Changeling is uh, about 16, I think, at this point. If Kid Flash is in college, you got to assume he's about 18, maybe 19. Um, Wonder Girl might be younger. Robin might only be 18 at this point. So, um, um, you know, these are very young characters. And it was one thing for me to read these characters when I was a teenager. And now I'm, you know, 37 and I'm reading these characters. And and do they feel like, uh, you know, if Kid Flash is 19 and is running around punching these aliens and stuff like that, it's just, could I see that? Could I see a 16-year-old changeling, you know, who was superhero all his life, 
um, battling these aliens. So it's an interesting questions. You know, it's an interesting way to look at this team because they are so young. Um, they're so iconic now because after 30 years of reading them, it's. I just wonder what it was like to read this first issue and be like, wow, look at these characters. They're awesome. They have all these powers, yet they have all these problems, and they're going to come together and be an awesome team. By the way, that Robin panel where he's punching the Gordanian up on page 23 is a, a very Perez design where you sort of are getting the you're looking at the fist and the face of the guy being punched. And it's also very Kirby. As I was going through some other Paris stuff, I've noticed that he's he was very Kirby-esque in some of his bigger action sequences. Um, he moved away from it very quickly and became his own person, but he you could tell he was a fan of Kirby. They finally rescue Starfire, and while she's in Robin's arms, uh, a Gordanian sneaks up on him, and she just blasts him. And in the next panel, you see Kid Flash's look, and he's got like this look of horror on his face. And Robin says, she's passed out again. The strain must have been too much. And Kid Flash says, and we were trying to save her? Um, Starfire's a warrior, and she's not afraid to kill. And I would probably bet that she killed that Gordanian, which is why you get that look on Flash's face. Um, uh, you know, she's not afraid to hold back. And that is part of her character, and that's something Wolfman will play with. We also learn a little bit more about Raven. Raven and Cyborg are trying to dismantle the ship, and in comes Changeling, and he says, you called, beautiful? And Cyborg says, called? She didn't say a thing. So she must, as well as being empathic, she must be telepathic to some degree as well, if she was able to call Changeling over to where they were so that he could help out uh, Cyborg to sabotage the ship. So in the last two pages, they all escape, and sure enough, the ship flies off, and it explodes. So they killed whoever was on that ship. All those Gordanians, that ship exploded, boom, dead. Um, it's And it's not belabored. There's no—Robin doesn't give him some kind of speech that, that says, you know, hey, you know, we, we killed them this time, but this isn't something we can do all the time. I mean, they just did it. They rescued her, sabotaged the ship, took off, boom, done. Gordanians gone, Fry, fried frog legs everywhere. So that, um, it, it's, I can't even say it's glossed over. It's just, that's just it. That's just how they roll. You know, they're going to kick your ass. And um, it, it kind of sets a seriousness to it, even though it's very subtle because it happens on the bottom of one page, the last panel, and the first panel at the top of the first page. And that's it. Boom. Dead aliens. So, um, or maybe it's that they only kill aliens because I know there's a storyline later down, later on in the run where they are also in a war and um, they kind of struggle with this idea of like, well, we're at war, so I guess we have to kill. So, yeah, Titans, they're, they're not wimps. So they finally have all come together and Raven gives them a reason why. He says, uh, you were not, she says, you were not assembled simply for this mission, my friends. Indeed, even now... The menace is growing, one which only your powers can hope to overcome. And uh, we will learn in a few months, as it even says there, that menace is still months away. Months which will be used in created the, creating the greatest fighting team ever. Fightest team alive. And the last panel is Grant watching them. And he says, there they are, the ones I told you about. And then off panel, we, just, we, we see the word balloon, but we don't see who says it. They say, you want them destroyed, Grant? Very well. The hive shall see that your wishes become reality. 
So the Hive, just like Vega and the Omega Men and the Gordanians, um, has been around in the DC Universe for a while to, up to this point as well. They were introduced in Superman Family 205. And um, I know Wolfman played with them in his Superman books that he was writing at this time. So if they are around, and Grant is very much aware of them, and he's becoming trying to become one of them, uh, to go back to the what I was saying about when Starfire was in his in his apartment, there's a story there. Like, how did Grant come across Starfire? Was it purely accidental? Did she just literally fall out of the sky and in in when she was escaping from uh, from her captors, and he just picked her up, or was there something more to it? Um, obviously he must he, he had to have notified the hive and uh, I just think there's just an interesting story there that I don't think is ever really told not a major story just a sort of little one-off like um, you know I can't imagine that the hive would sort of know about Vega because the hive are very they're very much an earth organization um, but um, possibly you know you never know so I thought that was just kind of curious the other thing about that's kind of funny about this last page there where the Titans all, are all standing together is Perez hasn't really sort of delinea- delineated their heights yet. Um, Robin, Starfire, and Kid Flash are all kind of like head-to-head and while they're looking and talking to Raven. Same thing with Changeling. He's almost as tall as Starfire and Kid Flash and Cyborg and Wonder Girl. So, And that's something that will change drastically over the next couple – over the next year um, I went and looked at the Who's Who entries, the first run of Who's Who, and Cyborg is listed as the tallest. He's, he's listed as 6'6", six, six, although there was a later Secret Files that listed him as 6'8", six, six, um, which, you know, maybe he, when every time he's rebuilt, he gets two inches on his on his boots or something like that. Starfire has been consistently listed as 6'4". Um, in the Who's Who series, the original one, Kid Flash is listed as 5'10". But he's always shown as being considerably taller than Robin in later issues. And in later Who's Who and Secret Files, when he's just a Flash, he's listed as six foot. And that's, that feels a little more right. Um, Robin is always usually considered to be 5'10". Now, here's the curious thing. Wonder Girl's only listed as 5'9". Now, that's tall for a girl. Um uh, You know, maybe slightly above average or maybe a little bit more slightly above average. Um... I always just assumed that she was, if not number one, taller than Robin. She was not as tall as Kid Flash, but a little taller than Robin. But she's not. She's actually an inch shorter. So could be maybe because she wears heels and Robin, Robin is in those little elf boots that uh, he comes across as shorter. shorter. But um, And that's been pretty consistent throughout all of like the Secret File stuff. They've always listed her as 5'9". Um, in Who's Who, Changing is listed as 5'3". He is a shorty. Um, and they, they poke fun at him because of that. There was a Secret Files later that he was listed as 5'8". Now, he is 16 at this point, so 5'3", he could be, you know, he could grow a few more inches. I don't know if he, five inches, I guess, maybe. Um, but I like that he's shorter. He should be around, be about 5'3", 5'4", 5'5", maybe 5'6". I don't know if you go any higher than that. And lastly, Raven, which this has got to be a mistake they list her as 5'11", but only at 125 pounds. So it's got to be a mistake because in almost every other who's who entry, she's listed as 5'1". So she's even shorter than Changeling. And there was one instance where she was listed as 5'3". 
So if we were going to take them in order, Cyborg is the tallest, followed by Starfire, followed by Kid Flash, then um, Nightwing, Wonder Girl, Changeling, and Raven. So so to see them all sort of at the same height in this book um, obviously means that Perez hasn't quite grasped their physicality just yet. But, um, uh, you know, he'll, he'll get there. And um, the next issue blurb says, Today, the Terminator be here on sale September 11th. September 11th of 1980. So that would be the debut of Deathstroke the Terminator. So as far as the first issue goes, um, you know, you meet all the characters. You sort of get a conflict uh, that will play out later. You get a little bit of teases of their origin here and there. You get some major action sequences. You get build up for the next issue. And you don't quite get a reason yet why they're together, but um, that's part of the mystery of Raven, and and they make mention of it. So fairly strong first issue. Um, I know this first issue for a long time was pretty pricey. I bought it for 20 bucks back in uh, probably the late 80s. I don't know. Uh, I don't know what it goes for now, but... uh, I don't know if it, I don't necessarily think it's rare. It's just a pricey issue because it's the first appearance of, of of a team that was fairly major and incredibly popular. I think it works as a as a first issue. Kind of works. Maybe I'm a little jaded. I don't know. It's kind of hard for me to uh, think otherwise. It's been a while since I've read this first issue, and there are some some dialogue things every now and then that um um might make you wince a little bit. Um, it's not real caption heavy. It's it's more dialogue heavy than anything, which is, I thought, Marv Wolfman's strength, actually. Fighting sequences aren't, aren't explained, even in the dialogue. Nobody's, like, saying anything like, oh, I'm punching this guy while I'm running here. Pretty cool. Pretty good, pretty good first issue. For the time being, we're going to have to go underground. How exactly do we hide when the entire planet is looking for us? They're looking for the Justice League without our costumes. We are merely ordinary citizens. Hold on a second here. What about the whole secret identity thing? I mean, I trust you guys, but I'm not sure I'm ready to... Wally West, Clark Kent, Bruce Wayne. Show off. Red hair. It suits you. You think? Change. Now. Now, there are two other comics that I want to talk about from the Legends of the DC Universe series that DC put out that relate back to this first issue. They put out the Legends of, of the Dark Knight spinoff title in the Batman universe, and that was supposed to be various creators working on Batman stories that may or may not be in continuity. They were just morphed to sort of expand the world of, of Batman. So they did the same thing with the DC Universe and, and DC Universe and called it Legends of the DC Universe. And the first one is an 80-page giant, and it's cover date of September of 1998. And in the middle of the book, there's a whole bunch of different short stories, there is a story called The Secret Origin of the New Teen Titans. And this uh, story was written by Marv Wolfman and George Perez and features the artwork of Phil Jimenez and Romeo Tangle. And Phil Jimenez is very much a George Perez um, uh Protege, I guess you want to say. And they brought back the original inker, Romeo Tangle, and, and Wolfman and Perez were part of the writing team, so it was kind of cool. It has a very, very new Teen Titans feel to it. It 
shows you the backstory of why Raven brought this team together. Now, we'll get that in later issues of the series itself, but this sort of uses hindsight and kind of merges it all together. And what it shows you that it it didn't show you before is when Raven goes off to assemble her team, this is sort of the precursor to that. She she basically is looking over all of the of the characters. Like she goes to um Gotham City where she watches Robin battle Two-Face. She's just sort of watching to see, you know, maybe this is someone that she wants to be in her team. Even though Robin takes out Two-Face, the cops are like, "Hey Robin, give Batman our thanks. Two-Face won't cause any more trouble." And he says, "Batman, yeah, right." Like cuz he he just took down Two-Face, but they're giving the credit to Batman. And Rob Raven thinks, you know, um, here's this he's this guy who who used to lead the Teen Titans, and that was his joy. But they've gone their separate ways. And she says here, if this boy is not permitted to grow, his loneliness may very well someday destroy him. She says, take care, Robin. I've instilled in you hope. Soon there will be a new Titans to lead us to victory, and then the boy shall become a man. So that's her reason why she chose um, Robin. Uh, she. Eventually, you know, she thinks about all the other Titans character from the Titans characters from the other Teen Titans series, like Hawk and Dove and Bumblebee and Harold and Speedy and Aqualad. But um, they need she needs more power. She needs those who can become a real team. And, and I guess she assumes that they don't have that power. So she then next goes and to the estate of Steve, Day- Steve Dayton, the world's fifth richest man, and where she comes across Garfield Logan. And she says about him, you know, control – basically he's very upset about his origins and being called a freak and he thinks his life sucks. And uh, she says, control your anger, Garfield. Do not allow it to control you. Um, she sees that he has a lot of power. There's a panel here where Changeling is talking to a character that he knows named Jillian. And since this is before the formation of the New Teen Titans, Jillian is portrayed as this sort of like um, – I don't know, very stylish. She's got pink hair. She's got hearts for sunglasses, uh, a little furry bikini thing. And, and she just looked very modelish and stylish. But that wasn't really how she looked at this point. We didn't get that look from her until years later. So that's a little bit of a mistake there. But um, So Raven just senses in him that this is somebody that she would need. Then she goes to... Uh, Wonder Girl, who at this point has given up being Wonder Girl and just is trying to become a normal woman, but she's still sort of trying to figure out her origins, and Raven feels about her that she's lost, you know, that that she also needs people, a team that will sort of um, help her find her her place in this world, uh, and and Raven is there to, to make her to guide her to make right choices. And uh, she was just walking down the street and this thief kidnapped uh, and this thief stole a purse. And so she becomes wonder girl. She chases this thief into a burnt out building and she realizes that's where she was found as a baby. And that sort of connects to that scene in issue one, where she's sort of just standing there. And soon after, boom, here comes Robin and changeling. And we get that scene in, Issue one, where they all sort of meet up. 
It's then Raven goes, uh, she then goes to Star Labs and she's like overwhelmed because the emotions that are just seething off of Cyborg, she says, you're so filled with self-loathing, there may, may be no way to break through his hate. And even though Cyborg and his father are at at each other's throats about what his father did to Cyborg, Raven encourages and and... Um, supports the father and says, your son does does not hate you. He needs you. He is your blood. You must be of his heart. Um, and it shows here that, that Cyborg's father was actually going to try to commit suicide. He's like reaching for a gun. He's like going to shoot himself. God, let my death bring solace to my son. Um, Raven says, don't let him run no matter what he says. Don't let him hide no matter where he runs. Help him rebuild his life. And this sort of inspires Cyborg's father and he reaches for a pen and paper and starts to draw a T. He starts to draw basically what will become the Titan's Tower headquarters. Then Raven comes across Kid Flash, but she can't visit him. She says, this one is different. I have read his heart. I know his passions. He gives me feelings I have never had before. I cannot allow this. I must deal with him later. So the rest of the story just shows um, Raven going to Starfire uh, she's where she's captured and she implants in Starfire. She says, you've suffered long enough, Coriander, as as Starfire is, is all trapped up. She goes, there is one on Earth who needs you even as you need him. If there is love between you, take it, relish it. Both your souls cry out in lonely pain. And should your heart be for each other, these pains will ease and your lives may begin anew. So that encourages, that gives Starfire the strength to break free and she kills one of the Gordanians, and she escapes in a ship. And sure enough, that is exactly where issue one opened up. And Raven ends it all by saying, these six are the best their worlds have to offer. So my soon-to-be friends wear the name Titans proudly. No one will ever deserve it more. So it's kind of just Raven bouncing through each of the characters and giving them a little push to eventually form the group, the new Teen Titans. Um... Um, you know, she she senses in them that they're all in a state where they need some kind of change in their life, whether it's because, you know, they're, they're captured slaves or they're living under the shadow of somebody else or they have knowledge that they want to learn. And she gives them that extra little push. So that's a nice little pre-prologue to New Teen Titans number one and um, really good artwork. And uh, I can't say, like, you don't have to necessarily include that in your continuity, but because uh, um, the whole idea of Raven sort of supplanting these thoughts and feelings into the team is kind of subversive and um, kind of gives a little bit of the magic away of them uniting. But to, but on the other hand, um, as the 16-page prologue showed, they... Um, you know, Raven, Robin was having that dream and Kid Flash was given the impulse to join the team. And so it's, it, you know, there is some precedent that Raven manipulated events so that the Titans would come together and that'll play out in another issue down the road. So that secret origin tale actually kind of makes sense. The other one is also a Legends of the DC Universe book. It's issue 18. It's cover date of July 99. And it's called Conflicting Emotions. And it is by Marv Wolfman with art by Jackson Geis. And uh, this, and it says here, Raven created by Marv Wolfman and George Perez. Very cool. This gives a lot of background to Raven, to her time on her world. 
and her sort of first visit to Earth and how the emotions overwhelm her shows the the one thing that we missed from that little secret origin is what happens when Raven con- uh contacts Kid Flash and how did that story come about and at this point in his life Kid Flash Wally West he's trying to make a name for himself he's just trying to be his own um, person go to college stay away from the superhero game and he has this girlfriend who winds up breaking up with him and going off with somebody else and he's all depressed and pissed off and runs away and um, uh, runs so far away he runs to like these mountains covered in snow and just like lays there and just wants to like die he even says here, um, I chased everyone away. Uh, what have I done? I don't want to feel all this pain anymore. I, I don't want to feel anything anymore. And he just lies there and he's like frozen, half dead, and Raven finds him. Um, she's been sort of seeing him throughout, like seeing his torturedness and his pain. And like earlier he says, she says, um, is this love? Is It is so overwhelming. It hurts so much, but it also, but it is also so strong. He is so exposed, so hurt. All his emotions are open to me. I am drawn to them. He's such a, a good soul, and he is in such pain. His feelings, his passion, so much hurt, so much love, so much he wants to give, so much I need to take. I feel feel so much. This is not good. I have feelings I should not have. I am not ready. Um, she's, she needs to control her emotions, otherwise bad things happen, as we'll learn later. But... Um, she actually rescues him from the mountain and uh, says that, um, you know, that they'll meet later. She takes away a little bit of his memory and um, implants in her, in him, the idea to join the Titans. Because the very last page we see is he's getting a phone call from Robin with almost the same exact dialogue from issue one where Robin's like, hey, I need you. This is about the Teen Titans and... Kid Flash says, sorry, uh, I can't count me out. I've quit the superhero biz. And Robin says to Raven, um, you heard him. It's a no-go. Raven says, you did all I expected, Robin. I will handle Kid Flash now. And she goes to Kid Flash and says, your weakness is not who you are, but what you make of yourself. He says, have we met before? Do I know you? And she says, you will, Wallace West, you will. So again, the whole idea of Raven sort of implanting the idea of coming back to superheroes joining a team, joining a family, um, putting that in him uh, to to become a member of the Teen Titans so that she can, because she needs their help. She does say a curious thing, though, when he's laying there frozen. She says, um, no, no, ours will not be love, but to move past his pains, it needs to be um, come to me, Wallace West. So she knows early on that even though, Kid Flash is going to love her, whether that was something that she put in him or not. She knows that she can't return that that favor. And um, their unrequited love is something that goes on throughout this series as well. So two titles, two issues from the same title that touch upon that first issue very, very nicely. Obviously, they're both written by Mar Wolfman. So they they connect very well. And um, so, you know, take a look, look for those issues. I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes as well. In the 30th century, there are many dangers, among them hostile aliens, mad sorcerers, and guys in funny purple robes. But the worst of all of these would be continuity reboots. Having a problem telling which boy or girl or lad or lass is which? 
Which Karate Kid are you actually reading? Or what is the deal with all those Legionnaires in Superman's books right now? We can help you with that. So climb into the time bubble with Paul, Darren, Matt, and Scott every Monday for in-depth analysis of the Legion of Superheroes mythos, including retro reviews, current Legion comic chat, and more fun than you can shake a Martian ice cream cone at. Legion of Substitute Podcasters, forged in the present by stories of the future. www.legionofsubstitutepodcasters.com all right, to wrap up this episode, uh, I'll give a couple of shout outs to some websites that I used during all my research. Obviously, TitansTower.com, MarvWolfman.com, and ComicBookDB.com, as well as George-Perez.com. And using ComicBookDB.com, um, I was able to find out what else was going on in the larger comic book world at this time. Now, over at DC, in the very issue itself, issue number one, um, Wolfman does a text page called uh, You Can Come Home Again, and in it he talks about basically everything I talked about in the beginning, but in much more detail about how he created the New Teen Titans. They have here what's called Len's Lineup, and this must be Len, all the books that Len Wayne was um, editing at the time, and it says these, let's see, uh, on sale August 11th was The Flash 291, Justice League 184, Weird, Weird War issue 93, and Wonder Woman 273. On sale August 25th of 1980 was House of Mystery 286, Unknown Soldier 245, uh, Adventure Comics 477, and Mystery in Space 113. Um, so some of those books I'll actually talk about. Um, so this, these are other comics that have the cover date of November of 1980, um, which I'm using as a basis to sort of say that they all came out around the same time. So the two mentioned in that little lens lineup, Flash 291, was Flash versus the character known as Sabretooth in the DC Universe. And it was a character that didn't look like Marvel Sabretooth, but did have some kind of animal costume. Um, Obviously, Marvel's Sabretooth came out first um, before this one. And I don't don't know, maybe there was a Sabretooth even before Marvel's Universe. I don't know. But for these two characters alone... Marvels came first, and then DC came second. But in the back of Flash 291, there was a co-feature featuring Firestorm with art by Perez. And uh, um, that would go on for a number of issues. So not only was he doing New Teen Titans, but he was doing this backup feature as well. The other book mentioned was Justice League 184, and that was the second... Um, issue in the JLA-JSA crossover on New Genesis. So it featured the not only Justice League and Justice Society, but also the fourth world, Jack Kirby's New Gods. George Perez actually would take over with this issue from Dick Dillon, who had passed away. And he was doing not only New Teen Titans, but Justice League uh, 184 as well. He was also doing yet another team book, Avengers 201 at this time, where he was the artist. This is the one that has Jarvis on the cover holding a vacuum and and the Avengers are sort of behind him kind of giggling. So that's three team books, Avengers, JLA, and New Teen Titans. Plus he did that Firestorm backup. Um, And who knows, I might have missed a cover or something else that he did. So he was doing, you know, for a cover date of, for one cover date, November 1980, he did three major team books, major, major books in both companies pretty awesome let's see what was wolfman working on at this time he was also doing action comics 513 where he begins writing the title for four issues and um 
He was also writing Green Lantern 134. This was the second Green Lantern issue that he wrote, and he would go up to write Green Lantern 153. He also was writing Batman 329. This was the second issue of around eight issues. So he was writing Batman, Green Lantern, and uh, the Superman books. And when I saw that, I was like, wow, you know, a lot of people make the comparison of Jeff Johns and Marv Wolfman. Uh, they call Jeff Johns sort of like a modern-day Marv Wolfman because Johns wrote Infinite Crisis, wrote a major you know, uh, event in DC's publishing history. So did Wolfman, obviously, with Crisis. But um, both of them wrote Green Lantern. Both of them wrote the Superman books. And although Wolfman was writing Batman, um, uh, Johns wrote The Flash. So, you know, and, and Wolfman had just come to DC and he was already writing these books. So that was that's kind of cool. So that that's why when people say that who is Johns's counterpart in the DC universe back in the day, you I, I immediately always say Marv Wolfman. Through Marvel at this time, Amazing Spider-Man 210 with cover date November of 1980 was the first appearance of Madame Web. Ghost Rider 50 featured Ghost Rider and Knight Rider or Phantom Rider. And Moon Knight number one by Doug Munch and Bill Sienkiewicz shipped as well with a cover date of November 1980. So those are sort of like, you know, some major books. Um, there might obviously there might be some other ones, but those are the ones I sort of recognize the most. Books that came out in November of 1980. Now, interestingly enough, when you pull out those issues, so I'm going to pull out those other Paris issues, um, Avengers 201, Justice League of America 184, and the backup tale in Flash 291. In Flash 291, the Firestorm backup tale co-features has eight page, extra pages with Firestorm. Um, this is, let's see, Jerry Conway was the writer and the artists were George Perez and Bob Smith. And you, obviously you can see a lot of Perez's style in it. Um, but there's a lot of Bob Smith as well. Um, uh, it's not sort of what my mind's eye, what it sees as Perez, pure Perez. Um, so to be under, you know, totally understandable. He's working on these major other team books. So. Maybe he did some rougher layouts with that issue. So that was that, right? And then you get to JLA 184, Apocalypse Now. And this is Perez along with uh, Frank McLaughlin as artists. And this one is a little bit more of what in your eye you would see as Perez. Even though the inking sometimes masks his work, there's a lot of debris. There's a lot of panel layouts, panel camera angles, um, the way he draws certain characters. It's a pretty cool splash page. Um, his designs, his costume designs, his tech, the way he does flashbacks. This is all very, very much Perez. However, it's still sort of diluted Frank McLaughlin's inking or maybe finishing or whatever um, can get a little heavy-handed at times. So it's not pure Paras. And um, even the first issue of New Teen Titans is, when you when you look at it, you're like, oh yeah, it's Paras, but it feels kind of early, right? It feels like early, rough Paras, not quite, it's it's much softer, the women are much softer, the, 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 there's, uh, the panel layouts are a little rougher, he doesn't quite have his design sensibility, but then you crack open Avengers 201, and this is the book that he's been working on for years. 
And this is pure Paris. This is George Paris pencils, Dan Green inks. And this is the Paris that we all know and love. Major debris, the characters, he's real comfortable with, you know, the way he draws Iron Man, the way he draws Jocasta, um, which he designed, um, Beast, uh, Robots, he's always coming up with wacky costumes for Wasp, the backup tale um, with Inker Jean Day that features Jarvis, again, very, very Perez, all the background work, the detail in the buildings and the, the shops and... Um, uh, the fight choreography, um, all this is like, and, and then the cover, the cover to Avengers 201 is like major, major Perez. And it's, it's Perez by Terry Austin. And it just goes to show you how awesome an inker Terry Austin is because, uh, he really lets, he really brings the Perez artwork out. Um, whereas the cover to new teen Titans number one is Perez with Giordano. And I thought, I sort of feel that Giordano kind of, submerges Perez's work, Perez's line work. And, and again, it's kind of a little too heavy handed and, um, uh, Giordano's inks are kind of mask Perez a little bit, but of all these books, the, the four of these books, um, that, um, feature all this Perez artwork, it, it really is the, the Avengers stuff that understandably again, because he's been working on it for a while, that feels most like Perez out of all these issues. Even though in the new Teen Titans, he will eventually turn around and suddenly become like, you know, the Titans artist. And he, he becomes George Perez with the new Teen Titans, the man that we all know and love. And who knows, you know, he might've done that Avengers issue way before he did the new Teen Titans issue. And maybe the justice league stuff, which is, which is, I think quote unquote, better than the firestorm stuff even though they had to throw him on there because the artist died, um, you know, it's still pretty good and it's pretty detailed. There's a hell of a lot of characters in there, which he is a master of. So all to say that he's going to grow and become the George Perez that we love in the new Teen Titans. And finally, um, books that came out on November 25th that related, that relate to the Titans, obviously blackest night. Number five, has uh, some of the Titans in it, and of course, Teen Titans issue seventy-seven, which I talked about earlier, that has the um, homage to issue one. So look for those at your store if you haven't already. Um, also shipping this week, were uh, on November twenty-fifth, were a slew of second printings for the for DC's promotional event for Blackest Night when they let out all those rings and all the various rings were attached to certain comics. Um, a lot of those comics have had second printings, Rebels, Booster Gold, Doom Patrol, Doom Patrol. Doom Patrol has had a second printing. So there must have been a lot of high demand for those rings. And obviously people's fears of, of whether these books were going to sell or not uh, were foolish because um, that looks like that promotion has been going very well, especially if a retailer promoted it right. If you promoted it that you get, you have to buy the book to get the ring, then, you know, if you sell – if you know what your customer demand is, you're going to sell through those books because you're selling a book per ring and it looks like it's actually paying off, um, which is really cool. I haven't gotten them. I don't know how I'm going to get them. Uh, I don't want to pay for them on eBay, um, but uh, I'll probably come across those rings eventually. But uh, so those are also coming out this week. I just wanted to give that a quick throw, quick nod. And um, yeah, finally, um, like I said, next issue, we'll be taking a look at 
issue two and some other things. I thank you for sticking with me in this long issue. I got a little rambly there in the middle, but uh, I'll tighten things up as I get more and more comfortable with these issue looks. You know me, I just like to try to really get into the nitty gritty of why comics are the way they are and how they relate to the larger world of comics and the larger world of their creators and their characters and their titles. So um, if you're reading along, I will be taking a look at issue two next issue, next episode, and then from there we'll see what happens. Feel free to send me an email, peter at comicgeekspeak.com. Go to the forum and check out the talkback thread for this episode. You can also follow me on Twitter, Peter John R. Find me on Facebook. Go to my blog, peterjohnrios.blogspot.com. And you can always send a voicemail, 215-279-8839. Thanks for joining me this episode. Do me a favor. Don't let your comics go unread. I pulled out my Amethyst collection and read it from beginning to end. And you know what? All those little pieces of information in my brain finally make sense in the larger DC universe. So if you have a miniseries, an ongoing series, or a trade that is sitting there for months, years unread, take it out, read it, enjoy it, and have a great day.